from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are we, are we on? Are we, are we recording? Is it on now? It's nice. Do you, want, do you guys want to come sit closer? Come closer. When Matthew Freud suggested that I have my debut live podcast, my first call was to Josh Berger. Josh said yes. During his 30 years at Warner Brothers, Josh brought to audiences the greatest movies, Harry Potter, A Star is Born, The Hangover, which I personally loved, and (laughs) Hell Make London, a city of moviegoers and movie makers. As chairman of the British Film Institute, he turned it into something exciting and dynamic. In his spare time, he co-produced the Tony Award-winning Broadway musical Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations. In his spare, spare time, Josh is my friend. And though I'm 20 years ahead of him, for endless reasons, I refer to him as my older brother. It's safe to say that I think I know practically everything there is to know about Josh Berger. But tonight, talking with him, with you, as an audience, about food in his life, I think and hope that I'll learn more. Lucky me. (laughs) So you also might know that Josh, if you do listen, he also has a very important role in that he introduces every podcast of River Cafe Table 4. Here we go. This is the job about which I'm proudest that I've had. (laughs) And here goes. Welcome to River Cafe Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. How about that? Yay! (laughs) Thank you for coming tonight. That is the end of the podcast. We're done. done. Let's go. This was great. Okay. So you you talk a lot about going to restaurants for pleasure. But in the movie business, a lot of work gets done in restaurants. People do deals in restaurants. They interview people in restaurants. Would you do business over food? Definitely. I mean, the place where I really learned the art of uh, a sort of a business meal, where they really get it right, is Spain. First of all, you go to lunch in Spain at about 2 or 2.30. And if you get it right and you're doing business with somebody, you'll still be there at 5.30 or 6 o'clock. And so there's an unwritten rule in Spain when you're at a business lunch, which is you never talk about business until coffee and dessert. And so that means that you'd be sitting there with you know, somebody for two, maybe three hours before you have any discussion. And of course you drink a bottle or two of wine before you get there. So needless to say, all of the business you do is fabulous (laughs) because you are completely wanted by the time, you you know, dessert gets there. And, and I tell you the best business meetings I've ever had in restaurants always were in, in Spain for that reason. It's a very smart idea. You know, you develop a rapport with somebody, you talk about what you're doing and and what matters to you. So by the time you get to the business, it takes 15 minutes and you kind of sort it out. So, and, and any restaurant where you've got space, you know, I, I, that, uh, just to answer your 
question. Yeah. The somewhere where you you actually are not on top of other people and the service is that right balance of attentive but basically in the background. Does taking somebody out to a restaurant tell you about the person you're taking out as well? The way they behave in a restaurant? Does oh, that... God, yeah. Yeah, you can, you can tell everything that matters probably about somebody during a meal in a restaurant, you know, how they talk to you, but more importantly, how they talk to the people in the restaurant. And when people are polite to the people serving them, when they're rude, if they're short, if they are looking at you in the eye or not. I mean, it, all of those little, those little clues are, are very helpful, especially if you're trying to assess whether or not to, to work with somebody, to be in business with somebody. It's very revealing for sure. I don't know if you know the drill, but the drill is at every guest. And that's how we really started. The idea of doing a podcast was that we would just do a recipe, just a recipe every day of the uh, year. And some very bright person said to me, Ruthie, maybe we need a little bit more. So the idea of the recipe segued into a story about food in the guest's life. So with Josh, we're going to start with the recipe that you've chosen from the River Cafe cookbooks. Yes. <clears throat> I will read Banya Cauda with Prosecco. These are autumn vegetables, but it's a seasonal dish. It serves six, and you would add the following. 750 milliliters of Prosecco, three garlic cloves peeled, 300 grams of Swiss chard, one small pumpkin cut into six pieces, three celery hearts quartered, 12 salted anchovies cleaned and filleted, 250 grams unsalted butter softened, and 50 milliliters of the best River Cafe olive oil. So you put the Prosecco into a saucepan, add the garlic and boil until the Prosecco has reduced and the garlic is soft. Remove from the heat and set aside. Then bring a saucepan of salted water to the boil. Blanch the Swiss chard, making sure the stalks are softened before draining. Add the fennel, pumpkin, and celery hearts to reduce the heat and simmer for 10 minutes or until tender. To finish the sauce, return the saucepan with the reduced Prosecco and softened garlic to the heat and add the anchovy fillets. Allow them to melt into the mixture. Gently whisk in the softened butter little by little, removing the pan from the heat after the first addition of butter. When all the butter has been incorporated, add the olive oil and black pepper. Arrange the vegetables on a warm plate and pour over the sauce and serve immediately. Yum. Yum. Hmm? Yum. So of all the recipes that you could have chosen in, in the books, what made you choose Banya Cauda, Josh Berger? So Banya Cauda is a, a dish which I first tried at the River Cafe. I don't like anchovies. Mm. Uh, and so Banya Cauda was always something that I wouldn't go near. And then I think I tried it off of somebody's plate, not knowing what it was. And it, it was just the best vegetable dish I think I had ever eaten. And the anchovies are, you know, they just come together with all of the cooked vegetables and they make this beautiful, salty, warm, fabulous vegetable dish. And it's now my favorite vegetable dish in the world. And I order it every time it's on the menu. And whether it's a summer banya cauda or indeed a winter, it is fabulous. And I love it. And so it's uh, pretty sophisticated. It's very regional. It is very much from the Piemonte region of, uh, of Italy. And I, I think growing up in L.A., did you ever have a banyacauda in Los Angeles? Well, banyacauda means warm bath. <laughs> so you've had a I warm bath. <laughs> I had warm baths, not that many. But uh, I, I, I have to say I'm not sure 
that I had anything even close to a banya cauda, except sure. for maybe a pizza. So tell um, me about growing up in LA. You grew up in Beverly Hills? I did. I was born in Los Angeles, California, where I spent my first 18 years, um, really not leaving at all. And, uh, and I grew up in the Beverly Hills part of, of Los Angeles to parents who were in the entertainment business. Uh, one was a manager and the other was an agent. And so they worked with actors and, and directors. And my father in particular worked in the music business and managed a lot of the Motown artists. So I had a, a, a strange kind of childhood of a lot of recording sessions and American Bandstand and Soul Train on the weekends. And, but um, but I, I, I grew up in a very entertainment world which is not surprising because it's a, a, a sort of a one-industry town, or at least it used to be back in the 70s and 80s when I grew up. And what about what were your childhood memories of, of food in both your home or going out to restaurants? What was that like? Well, I, I was in lots of restaurants with my father. My parents were divorced. Um, there was no family meal as such. That just wasn't a part of, of my childhood. And I just kind of remember certain dish, certain things that I ate, which I, I kind of loved. And uh, there was a, a British woman named Sarah, who was my father's uh, girlfriend after my parents split, who made me a BLT from Britain. And somehow it seemed so exotic that it was a British bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. And it really was the best thing I had ever eaten up until that point. Um, I was about seven, eight years old. And uh, I didn't hear, what was it? He said, here, here. Oh, here, here. I agree. There we go. We love it. And, uh, and I had it with a root beer, which I don't know if anybody's familiar with that drink, but it was a very, very good combination. And then from there, though, I would say that the thing that I was most involved in eating regularly was breakfast cereal. And I was a real expert on breakfast cereal. And I ate, I think, every one that was on the market because I would make it a point of trying all of them. And there was a time that I could do a, like a blind tasting and name every breakfast cereal. And I would eat, I would eat it for breakfast and I would also eat it at night um, and even in the daytime. And, uh, and it's nothing to be proud of, but I am still somewhat addicted to breakfast cereal. As a child, would you be expected to buy them the cereals yourself or would your parents or someone in the house? When I would, would go to the market. come to a cupboard full of breakfast cereals, you could choose them? Yeah, when I would go to the market. I would buy them myself. My mother would buy them. My father would buy them. My father still buys them. To, you know, when I come to Los Angeles and I stay with him, he still loads up with you know Cocoa Krispies and Cocoa Pops and Lucky Charms. There used to be uh, a the saying that the box had more nutrition than the cereal. <laughs> that is very possible. The other thing I would do is I would read the boxes and I would commit to memory everything that was on the boxes. This is what I was left to do as a child. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Well, I always think that one of the, again, knowing you really well, that you are an exceptional guest. You are somebody who feels very comfortable in other people's houses. We all, as hosts, love having you in our house. And I think that that might come from spending a lot of time in other people's houses as a kid growing up in a nice after school going to... Yeah. Did you remember any of the food from... Would you choose kind of who you wanted to go to which house because of the food or would you just go to people's houses? I would go to people's houses. I, I mean, I've been, of course, in anticipation of this conversation, I've been trying to remember anything that I could about the food that I would eat in my friends' houses. And I did spend an inordinate amount of time in other people's houses growing up. Um, my mother worked, my father worked, and and so I had a couple of sort of very close friends and I would spend much time in their place. And I would have dinner there invariably almost every night. And I just can't remember one of the meals, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and um, But I do remember, I, I remember my mother cooked, she really cooked two things that I remember and that I loved and I still love, a pot roast and a lasagna. Uh, and... Um, and a stuffed cabbage as well, the, the, cabbage. the third thing. And um, and in fact, I called her the other day and I asked her, why was the stuffed cabbage so good? And she told me because she added brown sugar and sour salt. Uh, I don't even know what sour salt is. I don't know but what sour salt is. Does anybody know what sour salt is? No, I've never heard of it. Hmm. No. It's a very obscure recipe, maybe from Eastern Europe or something. Yeah. And then so you was, were thrust into the world of Motown and music. And was there food there? Would you go to... To the equivalent of what music terms is a set or a studio, would there be food there? Would there? Yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember going to sets of like those TV shows that I, I mentioned, which I used to go to on the weekend with with my dad and and his clients, and um, and I think, frankly, TV sets then and even today. Um, and recording sessions um, in in the studio, it's all the same kind of food. You know, it's it's just it's kind of fast food. It's sandwiches, it's donuts, it's cookies. Nothing particularly good. I mean, I, I think there's a focus today, at least, on a movie set or a TV set to have some healthier options because that's sort of the the age that we're in. Um, but back then, it was great for a kid because it was just junk food everywhere. I loved that. But but uh, my godfather was Barry Gordy, the the the, the founder. Of Motown, and so I spent my weekends at his house often, and and so on Sundays, sort of late in the day, the sort of dinner that would be served early was Southern fried cooking, which was his his background and his heritage, and and in a way I, that could be the first cuisine that I understood to be a particular category of American cuisine that I loved. You know, it was it was fried chicken and collard greens and black eyed peas and macaroni and cheese and I mean it was just all all of it was completely delicious. I used to really look forward to that 
that Sunday in that Sunday evening meal. Um, and it was funny because it would be served in these beautiful, you know, silver servers, but it was, you know, just the, Fish. this very earthy food and, and yeah, black and cod and black and redfish actually is the What's one that? loved. What's black, black and redfish red is, it's a sort of a, a Southern, a Southern way of cooking fish, I think from Louisiana and, and Mississippi where I don't know how they do it. I mean, they, they blacken this redfish. I mean, they really char it. That's very, very smoky and kind of the skin is crispy and mm. really tasty and mm. spicy too. Mm. Well, we could go to when you went to university. Was that an awakening at any point? It was. I left LA and I, I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I was going to Harvard. And and I, it, it wasn't. There was no awakening yet while I was there. I you know I like I liked school food in high school and in college. You know this kind of mass produced food. But the awakening happened more when I I took a year off of school and I went to live in Italy to work and I. I was in Venice and a guy was selling a raw tomato. I think he was just trying to get rid of the last bits of him. He said, here, you know, I'm going to sell you, you know, a couple of tomatoes for, I don't know, a couple of lira or whatever at the time. And it was really hot and I was really thirsty. And so I bit into a tomato of all things. And it was like the greatest thing I had ever tasted in my life. And I'd just gotten to Italy. And, and so began this, uh, a kind of revelation about food and about how how good food can be in in Italy and I was living in I was traveling around but I was living in Milan and really the place that I discovered this was in a neighborhood restaurant in Milan near where I lived uh, and it was just you know a lady in the kitchen and her husband was the maitre d what and year the was kids. this Josh? this was in 1986 and the fall of 86 and the winter of 87 and I just happened upon this place, and then I went there three times a week, and I got to know the family, and and they taught me about Italian food. And I ate so many different incredible meals. And it wasn't, you know, some of the famous dishes, but it was just, you know, the fish. It's like il pesce, you know, mm. the, il polo, like the chicken, the meat, the fish, the vegetables, i contorni, you know, and they just serve. You, you don't even know what you were eating half the time. Mm. And it was just mind-blowing. And I was alone a lot of the time, which meant that I could really sort of appreciate it. You know, there's no talking and, and I was learning Italian as well. So I would speak to these, the, these people and, and they would explain to me what I, what I was eating. And I think at that point, I realized that this was going to be like a love affair the, like for the rest of my life. And I kind of got very enthusiastic about food, no matter what the food was. And I still am. Two other people I think I talked to talked about Milan. I think it was Norman Foster who said that he had his first risotto in Milan. And up until then, he just had rice, you know, and what that meant, you know, just eating your, your first risotto. You know, I think Milan is probably a really good place to discover food. Did you ever think about cooking or did you just want to keep eating out? Well, my, my roommate, Paolo Savignano, taught me how to make pasta. And um, the other thing he taught me, what how to do was with vegetables, like raw vegetables. And the one that really made an impression was um, finocchio, um, fennel, which was just take a raw, I never knew what a fennel was actually. So he pulled this thing out, started cutting it into pieces and then just olive oil, salt on a piece of raw fennel. It's one of the greatest things in the world. It's interesting, isn't it? Because coming from California, which is the garden of the United States now, you know, the artichokes and fennel and and tomatoes and aubergine that we really now look at California as a place where we get these great vegetables and yet we kind of probably turned our back on the ingredient. And then it, then it all changed. And now 
in California, the ingredient is so important now. The way they grow vegetables in Napa Valley or surrounding, you know, Los Angeles is huge, isn't mm. it? But there still is that thing about that man giving you the ripest tomato in Venice. Exactly. And actually, um, something I didn't mention, when I finished university, I went to live in Paris. That was the first place I worked after school for Warner Brothers. And uh, and I had a great friend um, through my one of my best friends from college, this guy Alex, who was a chef, and he was training at Taïvan. And so he, while he was there, every Sunday night, we would have a dinner with all of these friends from school who were living in Paris at the same time. And, uh, and every person, there was a kind of a core group and everybody would bring one or two people. So we had these dinner parties every Sunday night and Alex would try out his recipes and the things he was learning. I mean, and actually I have to say that, you know, aside from my year off in Milan where I kind of discovered great ingredients and great food. And then Alex really taught me about buying great, great food. I mean, you just reminded me, you know, I used to go to the market with him off the Rue du Temple on the Saturday morning and we'd buy just whatever was there that he liked the look of. And then we'd go back and he would just throw something together and just make brunch for the two of us. And then Sunday nights we'd have these dinner parties. And that was the best food I had ever eaten up until that time. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So you talk about the exposure to Europe, you know, about Milan, about France, but you also, you have to bring in Spain here because you, I know you talk about Spain a lot, you love Spain, you eat Spanish food, cook Spanish food. Talk about Spain for a minute. Yeah, I moved to Madrid and, and I had been warned, you know, Spain, people had said to me, Mm, the food is not that great and it's all basically golden brown and everything's fried and you know you're not going to love the food and of course everybody who told me that really had just been there for a week on a holiday and didn't really know the food and i have to say it might be the country that i i most like eating in uh, because of the variety number one i mean spain is a country of you know, a half dozen countries you know galicia and what you eat there versus the basque country versus catalonia 
versus Castilla versus Andalusia versus Valencia. I mean, every, every part of that country has really its own cuisine and they're very distinct, really because so many different groups of people have been through that country and have run it. The, the, the Moorish influence in, in Spain, I think, has created just great, great variety of food and the, the fish and the meat and the sauces and the soups, because I'm obsessed with soups. Mm. And, uh, and I, I, you know, just from Asturias and, and the favada and the, the lentejas, the lentils of Spain, I still think it might be one of the greatest dishes in the world. I go hunting for it when I get to Spain. I was so wildly happy in that country with, with every day of my, my food experiences and, and also, the idea that you can just walk around town and just walk into a bar and say, what's the specialty? And they'll make you like the greatest mushrooms you've ever had. And then you'll go next door and you'll get a tortilla española, which is a basically uh, egg and onion and potato omelet that is so unbelievably delicious. And, and then if you chuck chorizo in it, it's even better. <laughs> and you can walk to, the, to every neighborhood in, the, in big Spanish cities and find... 25 different bars that each have, has a specialty. And I would highly recommend San Sebastian for that because that San is Sebastian sort of... Is huge, yeah. San Sebastian is the best city in the world for tapas bars because each one, again, has a specialty and the variety is just mind-boggling. You could go there for a week and go to a different place every hour and you wouldn't exhaust it. And then there's the wine. Uh, the wine in Spain is, I think, my favorite wine. And please don't tell our hosts in France. But, um, <laughs> but, but again, the variety of Ribera Which wine do you like? I, I mean, I, uh, where, where, to, where to begin? I mean, mm. I love Pesquera and I love the, you know, the sort of smaller, more humble wines and uh, the white wines of Galicia, the Albariño and, uh, is just fantastic with seafood. And then Chacolí from the Basque country, which the guys, when you go into a, you go into the bar and then they hold the bottle way, not the bottle, the, the leather pouch, and then they hold oh, it I up here and then they Barcelona. pour it all the way down. It's like acrobatic. It's yeah. fabulous. You are married to Dana Harmon who is Israeli, and I think that a lot of your conversation with me lately has been about two subjects. One is what it's like to eat in Tel Aviv and Jaffa, and the way the cultural food of that area has changed so much and what people are cooking there. Would you, either of you like to talk about food in in Israel right now? For sure. I, I mean, I think it's um, it's definitely one of the most exciting exciting places to eat, in the world. I mean, they just, uh, there's something about, I don't know, the creativity and the, the risk taking and the ingredients and the fact that many of these chefs come from, you know, Argentina, Mexico, Iraq, Iran, America. And so that there's just these, you know, these really interesting combinations of ingredients and foods and, and it's very original and it's unbelievably good. Um, but, uh, but it, you know, the truth is, I, I think it's true in a lot of cities, though. I mean, that's one city where there's a lot of exciting chefs. But, you know, London has a, a similarly exciting uh, collection of, of chefs that come from all over the world as well. Um, and New York and Los Angeles and Paris. And, I mean, it's, it's probably the most exciting time, in, you know, in terms of restaurants and, and creativity probably ever with, with food and food technology as well. If food is celebration it's love it's being together it's delicious and if food is comfort 
to you, Josh Berger, at the end of our conversation, what would be your comfort food? So my comfort food would probably be bucatini alla matriciana. Ah, nice. Uh, and I mean, I'm I might... sure you're going to say cereal. <laughs> I you wanted, sure you don't want to say cereal? I you can. I wanted to surprise you. Oh, I never would have. I'm and, sure you're going to say cereal. Well, basically, I would have said the spaghetti al pomodoro, you know, tomato pasta, yeah. which is our favorite meal always. And that is, in fact, the right answer. But I was, I was listening to, you know, over time, I, I listened to all the podcasts that you do. Uh, and everybody says the same thing, yeah, and it's just it would be so. <laughs> it's just not interesting at this point to say that. So <laughs> I thought I'd go with bucatini alla matriciana, which feels more interesting and actually is, really is even tough. better because it, it is the yeah. the best pasta dish I think in the world. It is. It is I recommend it. Comfort oh, yeah. or not, thank you, Josh. I love you. Love thank you, Ruthie. You. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> To visit the online shop of The River Cafe, go to shoptherivercafe.co.uk. River Cafe Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.